0: The first Bible reading is from Psalm 110. It's on page 492 if you wanted to read along in the blue Bibles which are in front, maybe in front of you in the pews. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet the lord will extend your mighty scepter from zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies your troops will be willing on your day of battle arrayed in holy splendor your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever in the order of melchizedek The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high.
1: The second Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter 7. It can be found on page 971 of the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter seven, starting at verse one. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of ev- and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then, also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from, the fellow, from their fellows, fellow Israelites even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He have he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, Set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever.
2: Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here at Newtown Church. And uh, a special welcome to those who are uh, visitors among us. It's great to and so exciting to be part of uh, the baptisms tonight. Um, Excellent. One of the things I hate about religion uh, is kind of just the, the technicalities and the intricacies that so easily entangle and kind of exclude. So as we're going to look at this passage tonight, Uh, You might be going, look, I I know Hebrews well, Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what Mike's going to say about it. Or you might be going, what the heck? (laughs) And and both people are so welcome here tonight. Um, But I'm a Bible teacher, and and so uh, our habit in this church is to to work through the Scriptures uh, systematically. Uh, We don't always do that, but that's our general kind of bread and butter. And, And as we do that, we're kind of exploring the whole counsel of God that we might apply to all of life. We might know God more. Uh, and that kind of means that we get to passages like Hebrews 7, so we're halfway through a series on, on, he- on Jesus and Hebrews, that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And, and we don't get to skip over it, even though it's kind of a, maybe a little bit strange passage, especially for a night like tonight. Uh, my challenge uh, uh, is to show you how this is a significant passage, how this, how this Word of God has significance for your life, has real power to transform you. So the challenge that I'm going to lay down tonight and what I want you to see above everything else is that your greatest need is a priest. (laughs) It's a weird thing to say, right? It's kind of almost laughable to say such a thing in 2019. Personally, I hate the title of priest. Uh, I get all kinds of um, titles, Um, some of them not so nice, but uh, I get called like padre or father or or priest or minister or pastor. Personally, my preference is pastor. It's It's kind of low key. Uh, and, and for me, there's only one priest, and it's Jesus, and it's my job to shepherd people so that they, they might see him as their great priest. But what are some situations that you might be thinking of that, that warrant that you need a priest? Uh, maybe a funeral. Kind of like, you know, it's like somber, it's like we need, we need a priest. Uh, or maybe an exorcism. Um, I was at the Rose of Australia pub just down in Urco meeting with a guy last year, and he said, I got connected to him through a few people. And he says, like, Mike, um, could I get baptized because I've got a demon inside of me? I was like, oh, interesting. Let's talk about that. Um, that was a very interesting conversation. It turns out he didn't really want Jesus. And uh, anyway, nonetheless. But it's hardly everyday stuff. Like, it's not, it's not every morning you might wake up and say, I need a priest. But I'm going to say you should wake up every morning and say, I need a priest. So that's the challenge. That's where I want you to sort of go with me to explore that, and it's it's in the text uh, that 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 our greatest need, um, such as verse twenty six, such a high priest, Jesus Christ, truly meets our need. And by the end of tonight, I want you to believe that that he meets us in our greatest need. So, so what did a priest do? Not just kind of what do priests do, we'll come back to that later, but what did a priest do that kind of that so fills this text with kind of language of priesthood and Levites and all that kind of stuff. Most people don't even know what I do during kind of my week. So people say, like, how was your week, Mike? And they expect me to just say, I just prepped a talk for Sunday. Like, that's all I did. I was on a holiday with some friends that I'd met through my son's primary school. And uh, the, the, the kind of the kid there, my, my son's best friend, thought all I did for the whole year was prep a Christmas talk I was like I was like I'm a religious Santa Claus. Um <laughs> but what does a priest do? Um I grabbed this pic off the net. I love grabbing pics off the net. Uh it kind of it captures the kind of the the ritual the kind of the significance of, of this of this priest walking into this this very grand holy of holies in in a temple of Solomon as it were. Uh it's not a photo. They didn't have cameras then. Uh and there he is offering a sacrifice on, on behalf of the people. And you could not help but walk into a place like that and feel the presence of God. And maybe even kind of see your significance or insignificance before such a grand and almighty God. Well, to kind of work out what a priest does, uh, kind of, uh, the writer of Hebrews explains it a bit more in chapter 8. Um, so he serves in the temple, we read in verse 2 of that chapter. Uh, and is in the presence of God. There, uh, he offers sacrifice. He offers sacrifices that he might atone for sins, that he might kind of stand in between as a mediator, joining the holiness of God and the unholiness of the people. Because any God worth their kind of wait in in kind of any God worth worshiping is a God who is Almighty is majestic, It is powerful. But when you think about what it looks like to to stand in the presence of such a God, you realize that there needs to be some kind of business done in between. You realize you can't just walk into that space and high-five God, as it were. And so the priest would would serve in the temple receiving tithes, uh, would offer sacrifices, particularly the sacrifice for sin, and would stand as a mediator between God and the people. And the whole purpose of all of that was in verse 17, that we might draw near to God. The purpose wasn't just in the rituals and the fanfare. No, all of that was that we might draw near to God, but there's a particular problem as we as we do that because of our unholiness, because of our sinfulness, and because God is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sin, is exalted above the heavens. And God saw fit to, to raise up a priesthood to serve the nation of Israel, there was this kind of tribe called the Levites, and if you're if you were going kind to of born into that tribe as a male, particularly, then you would become part of the priesthood of the Levitical tribe to serve Israel. So it was kind of like this lineage of uh, of priests to serve uh, the people. Did it work? Not so much. Um, the writer of Hebrews here is is quite clear. That the whole priesthood of the Old Testament, despite the kind of the good things that God was trying to establish in enabling him to dwell among this people, it just didn't work. It didn't work particularly. If you look at verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? The thing is, is this priesthood and all the laws attached to it was not able to transform people it didn't come with power it came to try and join that which could not otherwise be joined but it was like it was like sticking band-aids over over a gaping wound and you could keep sticking band-aids on but the priests kept dying and the priests were sinful and we are acutely kind of sensitive to this because we keep finding in our media that those kind of priests are these kind of these special religious people in churches they are sinful. They are broken. Why would I go to them to speak to God? That's been a human condition problem all the way from the beginning. But ultimately, this priesthood was, it was weak and useless to bring real, permanent, transforming power to a people who needed God, to be in the presence of Him. Now, we sort of, I don't know, I guess as a society, we've grown up from all these sort of little practices and trinkets and rituals. Uh, And so it's not just a case of like, you know, arguing at the technicalities of this not working. You kind of feel that it's just not going to work, right? And if I just think for a moment, just doing a bit of a thought experiment, what does it look like in 2019 to take out these roles of the priesthood? How does society kind of keep going? How does it function? Uh, Well, what if you took out, for instance, serving in the temple, now part of serving in the temple was that kind of that tithing, collecting a tithe. Uh, and that's not just to kind of line the pockets of the priest, no, far from it. That that kind of 10% tithing would, would actually go, if you look read the laws of Deuteronomy, would go back to kind of serving those who couldn't otherwise feed themselves. And I love how the priesthood, you know, is not elitist, but kind of brought down to the same level as those that can't look after themselves. The tithing went to make sure that everyone in, in Israel and even foreigners were able to, uh, to enjoy God's blessing to eat, and to be cared for. And what kind of happens when you kind of build a society around tithing, for instance, is that you kind of bake in this generosity and you care for those around you. So if you take out kind of this function of the priesthood, uh, I wonder what happens. A study done in uh, the U.S. only a couple of years ago uh, showed a strong correlation between those who were religious and those who were generous. They found that people who were religious... Were the most generous people in society. That'd be a good thing to keep. What about offering sacrifices, uh, particularly this idea of atoning for sin? I mean, we've we've grown up from this barbaric idea, surely, that you have kind of got to sacrifice a bull on the altar that you might be forgiven. It's interesting how the kind of the word atonement still kind of floating around. I kind of, I, is it going to come? Yes, I watched this on uh, uh, iTunes the other night so I thought this might be kind of good sermon sort of research. Has anyone seen it? Yeah, good. Apparently the book's better. Uh, that's what the internet told me. I felt there was kind of quite understated themes in this, despite the title being Atonement. Uh, but for those that haven't seen the movie, uh, there is this couple, Cecilia and Robbie, and, uh, and they are in love as a, as a young couple. And uh, Briony, who's kind of in the, in the bottom left there, she sees something and she kind of makes it this kind of story about what she thinks she's seen. And she kind of, she, she kind of well, she calls Robbie out for, for raping this, this young girl who, who, who he didn't. But she said that's what he did, and he went to prison. They broke up. Cecilia kind of broke connections off with the family. Uh, and it's just a complete mess from that point onwards. And Brioni kind of gets to this point where she realizes that what she's done has made a complete mess of every one that she cares for and loves for around her and her own life as well. And so what does she do? She spends the rest of her life trying to make atonement trying to make amends, trying to fix what she broke. You take that out of priesthood, you take that out of society, and we have a bunch of people who are just desperate to prove themselves, to try and fix what is breaking around them and in them. We, We need atonement. What about you take out the mediator, the intercessor, you take out this idea that you could just walk into the presence of the living God and kind of be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> that you don't need someone to intercede for you. I was um, reading this book called, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, Should Have Seen It Coming by Kerry Nawolf, a Christian leadership kind of thinker and writer. And he's been, he's, in that biggest book, he's talking about uh, burnout and, and kind of what it looks like to thrive. And he quotes this study um, that's been going from 1970 amongst college students in America. And in 1970, the question asked of college students was, are you a very important person? 10% of people said, yep, that's me. That's a bold move, right? What do you think the result would be 50 years later? 80% of people now think they are a very important person. When you stand in the Holy of Holies, when you realize you need an intercessor before the God Almighty and yourself, it's very hard to think you are a very important person. Now, I'm not talking about belittling yourself or looking down upon yourself, but it certainly cures this, this arrogance, this narcissism. 80% of people think they're very important. So just maybe there is a place for, for priesthood, but not the religious priesthood, with its weakness, with its with its rules, uh, with its uh, the ancestry, in steps Melchizedek, this strange character. I wonder if you were wondering when I'd get there. This this guy we know very little about. He appears in just a, a couple of verses in the whole of the Old Testament. And uh, he is, um, he's such a minor character that the author of Hebrews has kind of got to give you the backstory again because you could have so easily looked over him. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is actually there was uh, an idea of priesthood before it got all ritualized, before it got all Levitical and kind of all that stuff. And, and that was part of God's plan all along. Because he tells the story of Melchizedek, this, this kind of ancient uh, king of Salem, this ancient priest, who came and met with Abraham, this kind of father of the faith. And Abraham was a wealthy man. He was was a faithful man. And yet he met Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him, blessed him with the blessing of God. And Abraham gave him 10% of everything he owned. And so the argument goes that, that to receive the tithe, you must be superior. You must be more priestly. And so here is this Melchizedekian figure who is acting in this kind of priestly role, who, who hands out blessings as an intermediary, as a mediator, and, and receives the tithe. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that that was the very beginning of a much grander priesthood that would point to someone much bigger. I mean, when you look at kind of some of the language that the author of Hebrews describes Melchizedek with, that he has... Uh, without genealogy, without beginning or of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. He's such a minor character, but yet ascribes such greatness. I think what's happening here is, is just to really kind of contrast with that, that kind of those rules and regulations and ancestry, that to be a priest you had to be in the line of, of the Levites. Well, no, he was sworn in. He became a priest because of an oath, not because of these rules and regulations. And there was a, a kind of a symbol of this permanence that we needed and longed for. Kind of like maybe the unknown soldier. We, we know very little about so many who died in the great wars gone by. And so we've taken a, a, a few from, uh, from, from graves that we, we didn't know who the people were, and we've, we've created a symbol of real people, but a symbol of, of a much greater number of people who we want to honor, but we don't know their details. Melchizedek is kind of like that. We very know very little about him, but he becomes this symbol of a priesthood that we need and long for. And there's only going to be one person who can fulfill the reality of that symbol. It wasn't Melchizedek. wasn't the kind of religious priests. It was ultimately going to be Jesus. Because this priesthood, this this Jesus priesthood in the order of Melchizedek would be outside ancestry, would be defined by the power of an indestructible life and would be sworn in, not through the rules and regulations. Now we finally get to meet the priest who meets us in our greatest need, Jesus Christ. Someone who is perfect, who is holy, who is blameless, who is set apart, exalted above the heavens, and is able to save completely. I used to think as a kid, imagine being kind of like in these Old Testament kind of times, and you know, you're on the way to kind of like, you know, make amends, go to the temple, get yourself sorted, get forgiveness, and um, and you've kind of you've got yourself all sorted. Um, you're gonna do the sacrifice, um, you get forgiveness, and on the way back, you kind of trip over a rock and you you curse. <laughs> like, oh man, I've got to go back. I mean that, that's kind of a lame kind of you know thinking, but what Jesus offers us is permanent and and powerful. That His one sacrifice for us would forgive us of every sin, past, present, and future. Get your head around that. That Jesus would forgive you by His sacrifice for every sin, past, present. And future that he would be able to completely save, that you would never need doubt your standing in God's presence, no matter what you did, because of what Jesus did. Now, many of us here might might know this; it's kind of at the very core of Christianity, but we keep we keep finding ways to get around this as though it weren't true. And I think there is one of the, the most profound verses for us all in this strange passage, that we might soak in what Jesus is doing now because of what he did. Verse 25, read it with me. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. What's Jesus doing right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, not saying, whew, done all that business. Yes, he's done all that business, but he is right now interceding for you before the Father. He is praying to the Father about you right now. And he always lives for that. I was um, chatting with someone this week who who thanked me for, for praying for them I spend time praying with people all the time, and, and often people thank me for that. And I feel kind of like you know I, I'm not I'm not a priest standing between them and God, but I'm offering intercessory prayers. I'm praying on behalf of them. And uh, this person thanked me. I said, "Look, there's there's more than me just praying for you. There's Jesus. He's praying for you. He's praying before the Father about you and for you." As I was um chatting to this person and just thinking and pondering, what is Jesus saying as he intercedes for me, as he prays for me? And as I was pondering and procrastinating, Sammy J appears in my Facebook feed. I don't know if you've seen this video. And there is this kind of lame angel kind of sorting out kind of all the thoughts and prayers. I mean, a lot of this is coming again out of America to quote America again tonight. Um, and there's a lot of really horrible stuff going on in the world. But when horrible stuff happens, you kind of, what do you say? Oh, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And so there's kind of Sammy J, you know, as an angel kind of having to sort through all of those thoughts and prayers. And some of them are just, in, his, in the video, are just lame and just don't make the cut, don't get to God. Is, is, that what, is this kind of what Jesus is doing as he, as he intercedes always? I mean, he's been doing it for a long time, probably got a long time to go, and he's you know, so much to say. And, you know, whew, is that what he's doing? He's sitting there like that? Absolutely not. This perfect high priest. Is praying for you. And, and when I was thinking about what is he praying for me, he's praying in his promises. He's praying in his very character into my life. I was thinking about sort of a parallel verse where Paul speaks in Romans about, uh, and he asks the questions, Paul asks the questions, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. What is Jesus praying? He's praying a counterclaim to every condemning claim upon you. Every claim that Satan would have on you. Every claim that someone else might have on you. Every claim you want to put on yourself. Jesus is is claiming something bigger and better. For whatever you think of yourself, if you trust in Jesus, his blood was shed for you. You are now a son of God, a daughter of God, a co-heir with Christ, he is praying in these promises that we would know this more and more. A lot of us have these negative tapes playing over in our heads. You know, that sin you keep doing, surely that excludes you from God's grace, right? Oh, if oh, I've got to go to church again, I don't really want to. If they knew what was inside me, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have nothing to do with me. Well, i tell you what, Jesus does know what's inside of you, and he, and he died for you. And he rose again for you. And now he intercedes for you daily, forever, until we meet him face to face. When I was at Taipei at a church planters conference, um, there's all these kind of like, you know, A type people, kind of like, you know, just you think they're strong and they've got their stuff together. And all these these Christian leaders and they're kind of, they're super Christians, right? And the question was, um, what do you think God thinks of you? And all of a sudden, these kind of these walls come down. I love Michaela's kind of description of her testimony. These these walls that we build up, that they they crumble down. And so many people uh, around the table said, I think God's disappointed in me. And there's so many reasons deep down that we feel that disappointment that eats away at our relationship with God. That eats away at what, what Christ has done for us. You know what Jesus is praying then? He's saying, Father, he's praying to his father, may Mike know the fullness of what it is to be a child of you, Father. Would he know that I delight in him? And would you take away the sin that so easily entangles? He always lives to intercede. That is the kind of priest I need That is the kind of priest I daily long for. That there would be no more shame. But instead embrace. Instead power to transform. Rules and regulations, they just say no. Our culture just says yes. Jesus stands in the middle. As a priest who intercedes who atones and transforms us in power. As we celebrate tonight the power of Jesus to save, as four people are baptized and proclaim publicly their faith in him, would we pray that this this power, this priestly power, might be known not just in this room, but but in the suburb around us, in this city. That we wouldn't just kind of walk away from so-called fairy tales and and religions with all its hang-up, but that we might find the God who dwells among a people, who calls a people to himself and enables that through a priest, a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. What a beautiful passage to reflect on the character of God and all that we have in him. Let me pray. Now, Father, you know each and every person in this room. You know their backstory, you know their heart, you know the facades. Father, you have given us a great high priest who knows all of that and shed his blood for us. That we might be able to call you Father. And that we might be changed from the inside out. Father, if there are people here tonight who are who are exploring this, who are seeing you with fresh new eyes, Father, would you give them the courage to accept Christ's blood for them, for the forgiveness of sins and the new life found in him. Father, let us all rejoice in this. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.